Welcome, everyone. This is a brief history of power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Coons. Joining us today, the legend himself, the Reverend David Apple of Paducah, Kentucky. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing outstanding. Yes, it's uh, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be here with you. Happy to be here. Well, I guess uh, first things first, we'll get Adams out of the way. Uh, how was the weather in sunny Denver today? Sunny, blah, 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 pleasant, blah, blah, blah. It's going to snow on Friday. <laughs> David, how about uh, Paducah? It's gray in Paducah. Stays above freezing, so that's that's always positive, but the, no sunshine in the Commonwealth today. We're actually in the frigid 50s here in the greater Little Rock area, so we got that going for us as we all you know prepare for Thanksgiving, Advent, and for Christmas, so... We might get some variety in weather posting as we continue to record. Who it's knows? It's entirely possible. <laughs> I, I actually had to yell at my children yesterday to put socks and shoes on. So it, it's getting that cold here. It's it's cold enough you actually let them, you know, uh, you actually paid for socks for once. Right. So I mean, it's not, they're not wearing shirts. So <laughs> still Kentucky, but. <laughs> well, gentlemen, we've gathered today to discuss some listener questions. So we're going to see how this is going to go. We've got some really interesting questions to tackle. And so we're just going to get right into it if you all are ready. Yep, let's do it. So the first question deals with the United States of America and her being born through revolution. And to paraphrase the question a little bit is, since America ha- since America has been through a couple of bloody conflicts on her soil, in her time, is that just simply a part of the American character? Should we reasonably believe that America will end in bloodshed? And we'll discuss this particularly in light of both the Revolutionary War and the American Civil War. Gentlemen? A good place to start thinking about stuff like this is where in the Old Testament you find nations described often at their beginnings, such as Ishmael's opposition to all and the opposition of all to him. And when you get descriptions like that, if you track them with Ishmael or with not a nation, but the tribe of Dan, that can help you over time notice the way that the destinies of nations are tied to their beginnings. And so I think that the premise of the question in that sense is is right. The question, though, I think is is in error in a couple of places, and that's going to affect what what kind of answer we give here. I think the assumption that America is a fundamentally violent, destructively violent, murderous, bloody place is something that all the way from Cormac McCarthy to the anti-gun agenda of many politicians is held to be just, I think, a given, right? Like we destroy each other, we're murderous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And the issue there is in the question about being born in rebellion and then also that we had to solve our slavery problem through war. And I think those those assumptions are both wrong. Uh, number one is that our our revolutionary war was not conceived of by people at the time or afterward as particularly bloody by comparison to say the three major indian wars that the colon- the the colonies fought alongside the crown before the revolutionary war in addition to which they didn't think of it as particularly rebellious but rather aligned with other events in english history before that so i think Part of the reason that the Revolutionary War seems like a obvious new start for us is because we often don't know what came before it, like the Glorious Revolution of 1688, or the English Civil War, or even the Wars of the Roses, anything before that where you have pr- tons of precedent in Anglo-Saxon history, let's say, broadly, for asserting the rights of those who are not the king. So I think the if, if you're going to presume that a king is in charge and can do whatever he wants, a form of absolute monarchy that nobody ever exercised, and you're going to assume that parliament ruling in the king's name 
can tell the colonies what to do whenever they want, however they want, as they did after the French and Indian War to pay for the French and Indian War, then okay, fine, we were born in rebellion. Since neither of those things is true in English history, our our revolution or our war of independence, as it was probably most often called by the people who fought it, was seen to be aligned with both our own history in America, you know, the 150 plus years of English history prior to the revolution, as well as aligned with ancient assertions of the rights of freeborn men that you're going to get even before the Magna Carta. So it it might be helpful to, to remember that Jefferson designed a seal for the United States that we did not adopt, but significantly he put on it two Anglo-Saxon warriors, Hengist and Horsa, because he understood the United States to be a continuation of ancient liberties, not something totally new as you would get a few years after our revolution with the French Revolution. <laughs> I don't know if you guys want to add anything to that, but the I mean, because I, I think slavery is kind of a different. We can talk about that. America is relatively unviolent as far as native conflicts go, at least between Anglo v. Anglo. Right. I mean, yes, you, you can talk right. about the Indian Wars, um, which is its own separate thing. But as far as I mean, we're looking at two major conflicts in 200 years, which is pretty good when you look at the history of literally any other nation in the history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, granted, yeah. the the toll is very high in the American Civil War, but still, I mean, you you know, once you start looking into percentages of the population and other things like that, comparing it to things that happen eleven, twelve, thirteen hundreds in England or on the European continent, and especially on up into the Reformation, post Reformation conflicts and the devastating effects that it has, um, America comes out looking pretty good. I mean, I think objectively, and I know it sounds terrible to say looking pretty good after the terrible death toll of the civil war. But if you look at really what we've dealt with as far as on the ground, you know, citizen versus citizen conflicts, it's been relatively calm outside of two major conflicts. Yeah. And the bitterness of, for instance, the revolutionary versus counter-revolutionary fighting first in France and then in all the places to which France's revolution gets exported, including Western Germany, Spain, Italy, over not just the time period of, let's say, the revolution and Napoleon's Napoleon the First reign, but really the rest of the 19th century in Europe. Not to speak of World War One and World War Two, which I will point out, as many Americans did at the time, we didn't start either of those. The idea that somehow we are uniquely bloody, uniquely destructive, is just not borne out by the way that things played out. And in fact, if you want to think about the the role of blood in American history, you really have to pay more attention to the Indian Wars and what was done on both sides at any given time in order to understand the way that Americans at the time thought about their nation. They didn't think of their primary conflict, certainly not on the frontier, but even once the frontier had passed westward of wherever they were, they thought of their primary conflict and difficulty as being with the Indians, not with one another. And that's borne out by if you wanted to line up all the colonial wars, death tolls and captives and what people focused on, their primary thinking about bloodshed always involved the Indians, not one another and not even the French once we came to fight the French in colonial times. I think that, you know, a little bit of this is the tail wagging the dog with the popular image of an American. Yeah. You know, both to Americans and to the world. Our relationship with, uh, you know, to guns, God's greatest technological advance and uh, things like that. The cowboy image, uh, the mythos around that. And, and then, of course, our nation building in recent years, too, has contributed to that. But I don't think that that means that Americans are inherently violent. Right. You know, vigilant, I would say so. I think that ties more into, at least historically, you know, would be self-sufficient, ties into some of this, uh, willing to take matters into their own hands that would have been handled civilly, yeah. at least, or by, and by that I mean by like civil magistrates in um, in the, in the uh, in England, for example. But um, no, I think it's just a little bit, a little bit overblown. And 
you know, does America have to end in bloodshed? Not necessarily. Does America have to end? Not necessarily, though likely. You know, we're Christians. America could experience great revival and see uh, peace reigning sometime in her future, or at least see, you know, a protection of citizens and violence afforded only for invaders or something like that. I don't think there's any foregone conclusion that America ends in bloody revolution. You want to talk a little bit about the resolution of the slave question through bloodshed? Yeah, I mean, we kind of have to. And, you know, so America does now, this is not a debate on why the Civil War was fought, this, that or the other. But the the indisputable fact is one of the major uh, outcomes of the Civil War is the end of slavery in America. And and so while I would agree that the major reason why Southerners are fighting is not slavery, and I would also agree that the major reason that a Yankee soldier is fighting is not the destruction of slavery. For some people, it becomes that. But either way, this is what happens. Uh, slavery is ended, and the war is um, the way that that comes about. Notably, Haiti also ends uh, in slavery through uh, violent through violent means. And usually people say, well, England didn't. But you also have to understand there's like five slaves in England at the time. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating here, but you're talking about America, which has literally millions of enslaved Africans. It's it's just a very different situation from England. Yeah. And in Haiti's mixture, you have a a large number of slaves and a very different uh, thing happening down in Haiti. So it's not surprising that Haiti and America end slavery the way that they do. Yeah, right. I, I think if you think about this less in mythological terms and more in simple demographic terms, England is commanding the end of slavery in a in an empire with top-down command from an island that has a vanishingly small slave population. Haiti is an uprising by slaves who vastly outnumber everyone else, who then kill the whites and what are called free people of color, people generally of some degree of mixed race, who either die, who either are killed or flee uh, very often to Louisiana, Mm -hmm. our Louisiana. And America is unique in that it's trying to get rid of slavery inside a nation state that contains people firmly committed to the preservation of slavery and people firmly committed most of them firmly committed to the preservation of the union. The problem is on what terms yeah. can you preserve the union? And that's why slavery develops as an issue of its abolition from, you know, Lincoln, when he takes office, promises, I'm not going to get rid of slavery to, I feel like I need to basically as a military necessity. Right. But and, and, it, yeah, yeah, it's we're all in the same country. That's the problem. We're right. all in the that, same country. You know, the, the Haitian Revolution, which is going to be 1791 to 1804, it's also tied up in things that are happening in Latin America at the time, and it will be somewhat not involved, but at least very much supportive of Bolivar, you know, just, just after the Haitian Revolution ends and things like that. So, um, you know, the United States of America is not Latin America, and it's not Haiti. It's its own thing. And while the two, if you just look at it from the outside, might seem very similar, there are a lot of differences going on inside of these inside right. of these struggles right i mean the haitian revolution almost deserves its own its own episode just because yeah. of all the stuff going on so yeah so america doesn't is doesn't necessarily have to end violently might could but it doesn't have to <laughs> <laughs> definitely might could <laughs> well that and that's what i'm i was thinking of that part of the question like the premise is okay those who live by the sword die by the sword kind of a thing so if you but but I don't think you have to grant that assumption, which you've already mentioned, Adam, that, uh, you know, the revolution was rebellion. You don't have to take that position to say, but it's likely if America ends, because when nations end, they don't end peacefully. You know, they don't. I, I can't think right. just off the top of my head here of a nation that has ever just said, OK, we're, we'd like to be taken over now. Right, it's it's not else. like a Culver's franchise that just quietly closes up, well, you right? Know. Reopens as Zaxby's or something, you know? Right, well, that, that would be blessed. 
Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's move on to our next question. This is a fun one. I think it's a fun one, and it has to do with biblical cosmology. And listener, I'm going to, to try to summarize this as best as I can. You know, understanding that um, the, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is officially creationist, we believe that everything was created in six natural days. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're the Bible. Not, we're right. talking about the Bible, not right. the Missouri Synod. Yeah. Right. And most, most pastors are going to be uh, young earth creationists, for example, which puts them at odds with the scientific community. And so you have creation, but then you have the related question of cosmology. Yeah. Uh, particularly with regard to geocentrism. Does the earth revolve around the sun or, you know, does the sun revolve around the earth? Are we heliocentric or geocentric? Luther and Pieper, you know, take a, you know, would not be uh, very welcome in the Neil deGrasse Tyson era that we live in today. And so the listener would like us to comment a little bit about biblical cosmology. And so how do we how do we square, let's say, um, the perhaps historic position of geocentrism with heliocentrism? And uh, if, if anybody wants to comment on that. And hey, we can also bring Enoch's cosmology into it, too, because there's a question of canonicity that comes up as well. So so we got two questions we, or maybe three. We got a lot of lot of lot to unpack here. Yeah, we do. So let's start with this. Uh, what's the Earth do, <laughs> according to the Bible? What do the stars do? There's a there's a big difference here between the way that the Bible talks about cosmology and the way that people investigate it today, either through or entirely without the Bible. And that is that you'll notice that with Genesis one and two, you have a historical account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. But a lot of other cosmological discussion runs through things that are biblical poetry, which doesn't mean that whether they're in Job or the Psalms or something, that they're unreal, but it means that their manner of speech is not necessarily meant to you know, describe reality the way a surveyor might describe a, a property that he's surveying, or the way that Genesis 1 and 2 describe the creation of the earth. So the stars are are meant it's it's clear in scripture that the heavenly bodies the sun the moon and the stars are set in this set in the heavens by the lord to mark times and seasons for mankind's benefit i think and here's where whatever i'm like a raging modernist or something i think that that's a different question from copernican revolution of the earth around the sun, which I take as as given. So I'm falling with no surprise to people who know me more along the lines of Melanchthon than Luther <laughs> on this particular cosmological question. But I think that the the revolution or the motion of the heavens is a different question from what the purpose of the heavens is. And the purpose of the heavens is to glorify God and also to mark time for the crown of God's creation, which is mankind. You know, one of the big proof texts, it's going to be something like Joshua 10, you know, O sun, stand still, that sort of thing. The sun stops in the sky, the moon. You have, you have interesting things like the star of Bethlehem, which I think we could even agree that that's a very special and significant event. Right. That You could answer that still perspectively, that from the viewpoint of the wise men, it's moving. Yeah. But it also could move. I don't, you know, I mean, like, like, here's the thing. So let, like, let's, let's hypothetically say that the earth revolves around the sun. That still doesn't mean that biblical cosmology isn't different. And I'm going to use cosmology. I'm going to make it broader than it's intended to be, because we do have things that I think you can't escape in the scriptures, like the aerial spirits and things like that. Like that seems to be their domain. You know, so in a sense that the spirits are in the air, so they're above us in a way, and we could even say they're in the atmosphere. Does that mean that you fly through a million demons on a SpaceX rocket? Maybe, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like, I know your answer to that question. So. <laughs> right, my answer is very clear. It's what the Bible says. You know, th there are things like the firmament and how to interpret that. There are things like, I mean, for example, let's just take it 
you know, it's like just plain earth sciences here, you know, are uh, at the time of Noah, the wells of the deep do spring up. You know, was the nature of, of the earth different at the time of Noah? I, I don't think that that's, you know, so easily written off uh, right. with modern science. Yeah. So it doesn't mean if, if we say the earth revolves around the sun, it doesn't mean that things today are always what they were, you know, as, as far as, like I said, the fountains of the deep. What, what does the firmament mean? Kind of that impenetrable barrier between God and man. Or and, and the spirit, the aerial spirits kind of occupy the middle space between the firmament and the earth. And and but it's a question of how you take that. Yeah. You know, I mean, because I, I don't want to say literally because that's a loaded term. But what does it mean to be an aerial spirit? What does the prince of the power of the air mean? And it's both an actual location, which I do believe, but it's also meant to convey more than that. It's meant to say something about their incorporeal nature or the incorporeal nature of the spirits. I mean, which sounds like I'm just repeating myself there. But the space that they occupy. You know, there is something to be said about, you know, you know, where is the firmament? I mean, if you get into outer space, if you believe in outer space, there is a big void there. Space is a vacuum, and it is hostile to life. I think you can make an ethical question out of it. Are we breaking the firmament? Is it possible to do so by going into space? Uh, where we have no place being, where it can't support life? I think these are questions one has to ask. It doesn't sound like an ethical question at first. It sounds like something as simple as exploring uncharted territory. But there is a difference between going into space and going into the jungles of South America or yeah. New Guinea or someplace like that. And and these are things that we're going to be looking at as we go back and begin to talk about the history of human flight and and of space flight more more specifically. Because the thing that I think we're missing when we when we talk about cosmology is what modern people outside the church are also missing when they talk about cosmology. Not just the details, but also that biblical cosmology is full of purpose. So it's not that the spirits are there just so you know that the spirits are there or that the heavenly bodies are there just so that you know that they're there and how many precisely how many miles away they are. They're there with a purpose, and all of it is created for the benefit of mankind. Because of that, mankind's destiny affects all of it. Whether you're talking about the opening up of the fountains of the deep to drown wickedness or whatever else is going on. So that interchange between man and the world God has made for his benefit and dominion all of that involved in sin and and redeemed through Christ, that's biblical cosmology. So there's not only a what to it, but also a why and a how. And when we forget that, we begin to think, okay, well, you know, Luther read the scriptures this way and Melanchthon read the scriptures this way on specifically Copernican and, and, and Capillarian theories. People read the scriptures this way. When you look at the Bible directly, you're going to find that they, they're not going to tell you exactly because the question does not arise and they're not particularly interested in what was the physical relationship between Joshua and the sun when the sun stopped. The purpose is all of it is subject to God's will and subject to the prayers of his people as he answers them. And therefore, the heavenly bodies even retreat at his command for the benefit of his people. Yeah, I mean, God could stop the rotation of the earth and right. prevent us from flinging off into space if he wanted to. Right. You know, part of this is this, this discussion is people assume that if you believe in one modern thing, you believe in all modern things. <laughs> yeah, right. That's also true. And and this is, to, you know, I'm, I'm not even discussing the, the, the moon landing hoax or anything like that today. But, you know, or... But we will discuss the uh, the satanic origins of jet propulsion very soon. <laughs> and, and, and I do think these are all intertwined. So if you're disappointed in what seems like a very Mr. Wizard answer today, just tune in later. I promise you'll be, you'll be happy. So Enoch's an interesting one here. So the Book of Enoch is going to use things like the foundation of the earth, you know, the cornerstone of the earth, four winds, things like that. And that's like an Enoch 18. And for some people... They see 
even a flat earth within Enoch. Because Enoch describes kind of a square thing. I mean, you're you're already talking about cornerstones, right? Mm-hmm. And and the idea of the of the winds kind of being put in storehouses. They're all adorned. That, that's how Enoch describes it. He sees the storehouses of all the winds, and he sees the foundations of the earth, and he sees four winds that support the earth and the sky, and the winds, which you can somehow see, are stretching all the way to heaven, and they're there between the heaven and the earth. Uh, they're 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 the pillars of heaven. So it's kind of like when the Bible talks about the foundations, uh, or the pillars of heaven trembling in Job. That's kind of what Enoch is is evoking here, and the winds are what causes the sky to turn. Uh, it's what causes the stars and the sun to move. I mean, Enoch says that very clearly, and. And then at the end of the earth, Enoch sees the firmament. Okay, so that kind of ceiling, for lack of a better word. Right. And so that is how Enoch views uh, the world. That is the vision that he sees. But it's also a prophetic vision, which becomes, again, a little bit harder to make into just some kind of, you know, bare description of, of a physical reality there. Right. I mean, what's the point of all Enoch is saying is that the Lord is supporting and the Lord has set into motion all of these things that are happening. I mean, that's the bigger deal here. And some might say, like the listener did, you know, what is, okay, so if if biblically, taking Enoch aside for a second, if Job describes the earth this way or Psalms or Joshua, then how do we approach it? And Enoch becomes trickier because while not a canonical text, at least one major church body accepted it as so. It was widely read at the time of Christ and beyond. It is quoted in Jude. And so we would have to at least concede that those parts of the text are true. So does that mean that the rest of Enoch is true? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a fair question, and it comes up a lot. My caution with Enoch is this. While everything in it may or may not be true, and I tend to, for me, Enoch does make clear even a lot of biblical illusions and i think it if you if you see how early christians believed and especially the jews of the time of jesus enoch is if not influencing what they think clearly a reflection of what they think so i think that you can't just throw it away but the caution with enoch is all of the people who can get youtube channels <laughs> and and so they they bring a lot of dangerous ideas into into their media and they use Enoch as a proof text for that. And so we want to be careful there that while you can take certain things from the book of Enoch as true and still be on firm biblical ground, you don't want to go off into the really crazy stuff because inevitably these channels turn into the Anunnaki wrote the old Testament and the watchers <laughs> are still coming for you. And, and the great irony here being that everybody's worried, you know, that angels are going to come down and make Nephilim again. But none of your women are, are, are keeping their heads covered in worship or keeping their heads covered in life. So you really need to check yourselves here on this one if you really believe that. And uh, and so, you know, just something to think about there. And now, that said, my position on head covering is very clear. Just come visit Zion sometime. You'll see it. You'll see it reflected in the congregation and a significant minority of members. But we want to be careful there. So much like hearing... Dr. Kuntz say, the earth revolves around the sun, does not make him a modernist. Me saying, yes, I actually do believe in a lot of what Enoch says, is not the same as saying, I believe everything a schizophrenic YouTuber says. <laughs> you you are one of those people. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, a distinction without a difference of what's going on here. <laughs> right. And, and no, I'm not going to elaborate on which parts I believe in. Well, describing creation as a house, I mean, like you just painted the picture from Enoch, that's not an unbiblical depiction. And that goes back to what Adam was saying about the the Bible is not, when the Bible speaks symbolically of of these things in Job and in Isaiah, uh, the it's not the material description that's really the point. I'm not saying that it has nothing to do with the the raw materials, so to speak, of creation, but the symbol of the world as a house that you you find that all through the bible and of course that's not the way that 
you know, the DeGrasse Tysons of the world want to speak because that's not what the universe is. That's not what the world is not a home for, for God to live in, to dwell with man on, but that's the picture of the Bible. Right. Um, so, so being sensitive to the symbolic nature of language and, and even in Genesis one, again, of course, I'm not denying the literal interpretation there, but the symbol of the firmament if you if you're going to do a show on what the firmament is you're going to have to be able to to distinguish between the symbol of a boundary between the heavens and the and the earth and saying it's a it's a literal line up there that you could cross right because it's it symbolically functions as this is a boundary that you you can't get over it so no matter how high up you go no matter how many demons you you fly through you're never going to cross the firmament. Right. So then to take on the next part of the question, okay, if Walter and Peeper believe in heliocentrism, ought not we believe in it too? That said, there are many other things that Walter and Peeper believed in that are probably more essential to our modern theology than, than cosmology. You know, there are ethical questions that Walter especially and also Peeper t- tackle that are more important for us. The nature of economies, for example, family ethics, those sorts of things. Uh, Those are the kinds of things that you really want to go back on and say, hey, why do we really change? I think there's more at stake spiritually in some of those positions that we've abandoned than in uh, the questions about the firmament or the movement of heavenly bodies. Yeah, and, and there's a logical error here, which is extremely common among Lutherans, that if it was believed in the past, we have to believe it now. Right. In which case, we never would have had a Reformation, if you're going to think that way. So you have to continually subject what you're thinking and what you're doing and 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 even how you're saying it to the way that Scripture discusses those topics and handles them or doesn't take them up or speaks about the world symbolically in places and respect that it does that and it doesn't do something else that maybe you would prefer that it do. And when you're when you're doing that, then you're actually using scripture as a as a plumb line for your thinking and your doing. When you're just saying, okay, well what happened in the past, what what always occurs and it occurs among Lutherans and it occurs among Roman Catholics and goodness knows it occurs among Eastern Orthodox. All you're actually listening to is someone else's summary of what he thinks happened. That's not the same thing as what happened, let alone is it authoritative for Christians to believe and to do. You're just, it's the same thing as a, a, an Eastern Orthodox guy saying, the fathers, which ones, when, and did they all agree about the aerial spirits or about whether everything would be restored in the end, like origin or whatever. When you do that, you just make yourself captive to men through it. Just be consistent. So if you're gonna if you're gonna adhere to Walther and Luther because they were Walther and Luther, get even more and even better guys and just go for the Cappadocians directly or go for Aquinas directly or whatever. But that appeal to authority is not binding on Christians' consciences. So the mere fact, whether you're a geocentrist or a heliocentrist or a Neil deGrasse Tyson centrist, the mere fact that Walther or Peeper said something for your faith doesn't matter. It can help. It can be informative for your belief that you'll have to answer for before God. It doesn't matter. And that's why when the confessions are speaking, they speak concerning what scripture says. Because when you actually have to answer for things before God's judgment seat, he's no respecter of persons. So you say, but I believed what Peeper believed in and of itself doesn't matter. You need to believe what Peeper believed when and where Peeper believed the Bible. Well, I mean the same, well, the book of Concord does fall into what you're saying though, in certain places. And I think to your point, you also won't be able to say, well, I subscribed, you know, quia to the book of Concord at the great seat of judgment. You know, I mean, now, now the hate mail is coming in. Yeah. No, like I said, those those things are just in group chats, so we don't have to worry about emails. It's fine. Right. Yeah. What 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 is hidden now will be revealed. 
Right. <laughs> God will ask you uh, what your issue was with the formula, though. Pretty sure about that. But that's only for a certain group today. All right. So that's fun. Uh, we'll get into more more of the esoterica yeah. on this particular subject in a later episode. Yep. Will you answer <laughs> what the firmament is is made up of, Willie? It will actually be a series of scientific experiments where we, we will launch uh, chimpanzees into space and see how okay. high they can go. Good. good. I'm looking for a good chimp dealer. Adam's my go-to since he's in the Denver area, and they seem to have a propensity of um, of medical uh, experimentation labs. So, and and space launches and, and space, and space research. You got it. No problem. Yeah, so, everybody's got a, got a good deal on chimps. I am I am Lutheran after all. We're not looking for the best, you know, just the cheapest because <laughs> they're not they're not going to last long. <laughs> if, if if my theory holds out, the thinning of the atmosphere above the uh, above Denver would be definitely worth exploring does it mean that the demons have been expelled or what what means it, it i guess means i'll have to submit my own questions everything it means everything is more vivid so yeah. we're we're that much closer we're probably the, the, about the veil, the veil is thinner yeah yes, yes. we're like 4500 feet closer than most of you to the wonders of space and to the fact that when you spend any time up there your bones degenerate and you age incredibly quickly I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but the hole in the ozone layer is actually formed when uh, Satan went up to talk to God about Job. <laughs> Shoot, I've said that, that now. Is, it's out there. It's now so, it's going to be on the internet now. Just, I mean, it's just so beautiful. I'm right. And, so, I mean, and, and that that helps me understand. When I was a kid, that was a big deal. You know, the that was what climate change was really. Yes, sir. That's like my yeah. first experience with it yeah. was if you Great. run your lawnmower at this time of day, you're going to rip holes yeah. in the ozone layer. Um, and now we don't we don't hear much. Yeah, about we, that we anymore. were very worried about greenhouse gases and uh, the greenhouse effect in those days. And then hairspray became spritz bottles instead of aerosol. <laughs> it had nothing to do with DuPont and and uh you know air conditioners or anything like that and patents but that's either here nor there it's actually the a lot of uh, the other reason uh another unintended consequence of the whole ozone layers that is why david is as dark as he is although german there, there's other explanations but that's as good as any <laughs> <laughs> I, my grandmother wouldn't want me to go into the other explanations so I won't. <laughs> we respect gonna... grandma Oppold. <laughs> Right. Blessed. All right. So the next one is kind of a long question and comment. And so I'm going to try to distill this as best I can on the fly here. So historians say there were Jews numbering in the millions um, up until around the time of Christ. And then within three or four centuries, that number is severely diminished. And um, the listener posits the theory that the explanation for this is because Let's say by the 4th century, the reason why the number of Jews is so low is that they likely became Christians. So the, the hypothetical is, what if the great majority of Jews did not reject Jesus? So the typical understanding is that very few Jews accept Christ, and so almost from the beginning, the church is a Gentile church. And so what do you guys think think about this contrary hypothesis that says that there was actually a mass conversion of Jews in the first few centuries and so that by the fourth or fifth century the number of quote-unquote jews is down to almost a million or less and am i am i right willie that the listener is that that idea of mass conversion was the one held by richard john newhouse is that mm -hmm. is that correct yeah i believe that's reflected in the articles link okay okay it, it, or if not in the articles sent it's it was newhouse position yeah yeah there there are several places to start, but at the 10,000-foot level, which is somewhere near the firmament, and then you just slam into it and fall back down. But at the 10,000-foot level, when you're dealing with demographic assertions, you should generally be very, very skeptical until proven otherwise. So until somebody builds up a track record of being reliable in counting human beings for whatever purpose, you should be very skeptical uh, because a lot is always at stake and it's easy to manufacture. That's that's the reason. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about this with modern demographics where capacity to count, to find and to count human beings is, is obviously vastly greater than in the ancient world. And our ability to know how many people 
could be, you know, in the environs of Mexico City, you know, November 22nd, 2023 is a lot greater still. Still, some skepticism would be would be merited. So when you're dealing with ancient demographics, it is wildly, wildly easy to make it up, to make up a totally different number. And that is why if you begin to look into these things, and one place to do this would be John Barclay's studies of the Jewish diaspora in the ancient world, you're going to find completely different estimates about all kinds of things. And you'll find the same thing with how many people were brought to Italy during imperial times and how many Christians there were. And Rodney Stark has his own estimate and other people have theirs. So I'm just extremely skeptical about number assertions because this sounds like he came onto his own and and most of his own received him. <laughs> right. right. I, think, I think we can answer this biblically and then with a little bit of history um, yeah. just in the first century or the first two centuries. So already in the book of Acts and the epistles, you see the church becoming Gentile. I mean, you're already seeing that very clearly in the text, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, the other thing is to understand that the word Jew in the Bible is not used in the same way that we use Jew today. Um, we use Jewish today to refer to a couple of things, either some kind of ethnic heritage, which gets really complicated, or uh, referring to a religion that develops after the time of Christ. So you have the diaspora that, that happens, you have the spread of the church happening after the destruction of the temple in the year 70. Uh, from there, you, because of the decoupling from Jerusalem, then we have the evangelization of the world that takes place. And it's not as if Jews had two options, the developing rabbinic Judaism or Christianity. They also had an option that a lot of people don't remember, and that's paganism. And that's what a lot of Jews go toward. You have that problem even in the Old Testament, that they're that they're already going after strange gods. And so what happens to a lot of them after the destruction of the temple is they simply assimilate into the pagan world that would not become a Christian empire until Constantine. So Christianity isn't even tolerated. And so what's more likely? They, they believe in Christ or they assimilate into the popular religions of the day, like many of them did even you know back in the Babylonian period. And so... Uh, to me, it, it's like even if we want to concede the numbers are correct, and I, and I don't believe that I'm with I'm with Dr. Kuntz on this one. But even if we concede that point that there were six million or five million, then I think the more likely option is that they assimilate into the world around them, if they if they don't spread out into smaller pockets, which happened too. But I think it's easier to say that well, they don't identify as Jews because they've become Roman pagans. Yeah, I, I mean, you you can think of the fact that in at least two of the Gospels, just to start with, and then how how you handle the way that Luke moves and and the way that Luke is kind of old timey in the beginning in its language and then moves into more contemporary Greek. But Mark and John both have to spend frequent, significant time explaining things, right? Such that it's like you know, uh, look at this. Look at this millennial try to use a rotary phone, right? <laughs> you have some significant break has occurred. And I think it's it's easy to understand that when you, when you look at Paul talking about the whole issue of the conversion of his own people, Romans 9 through 11, in addition to the election of grace and missions and lots of other great stuff. What he says there only makes sense if you're not getting in his time any kind of a mass conversion, but instead a a, a general opposition to the gospel from his own ethnic group. Why would the Gentiles be admonished not to be prideful if you were getting significant movement from ethnic Jews into the church at that time? So if you're going to say, well, then a bunch of them converted, you'd have to say, for some reason that no one ever mentioned and Eusebius doesn't mention, instead Eusebius in the church history is tracking continual Jewish opposition to the gospel and then how God meets out judgment to the Jews because of their opposition to the gospel, not just in AD 70, but also in AD 132 through 135, when Jerusalem is just leveled. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, that's the story they know, right? That's a story that, they, that, that contemporaries know about the Jews apart from 
you know, what they're drifting into, what an individual guy is getting up to in, you know, Corinth or Rome or something. I mean, Revelation speaks to this as well, uh, especially regarding the synagogue of Satan, the Jews that are not Jews. What does this look like? What does this mean? Everything is pointing to uh, relations turning even more icy after Christ's ascension. Now, there are mass conversions in the book of Acts, but that's very early in the book. And by the time you get to the middle of the book, you know, the the mission is going to where it's going and where it has been going. You know, what's the need for Paul wanting to be cut off for the sake of his own kinsmen here? What is it just um, I just don't think that it holds water. It's trying to answer a historical question that really isn't a question, at least to me. I mean, it starts with the presupposition that there's millions of Jews that disappeared. We don't even know that that's true. That's not verifiable. And so the premise then is is kind of the problem there. Yeah. Then, and, and, go ahead, yeah. David. I'm sorry. Well, the the article that the listener sent in is from First Things. I don't know how much the the Richard John Newhouse angle. I mean, this it does seem kind of yeah. Let's talk a little Newhouse. Let's talk a little Newhouse. That's that was going to be my question for you. Is just what to what degree is the the it's a a book review of a book um i can't remember the author's name that that is newhouse's this newhouse article but it seems to be that what he's trying to do there is sort of in some ways maybe just give credence to the whole first things kind of movement here yeah. by which and you I, mean I mean, what what is first things if not it it is it is a religious synthesis of something that you generally find on the American right after the Second World War, yeah. which is Catholics and Jews uh, working together, particularly in neoconservatism, which is generally people focus on neoconservatism being dominated by Jews, most of whom are raised as Trotskyists or were Trotskyists in their youth, and then get quote mugged by reality. Neoconservatism has, and a new house it's sort of encapsulated, had always had and has a significant Roman Catholic component. And that is incessantly interested in all the places where where Catholics and Jews can find quote common ground. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a present in Newhouse's present as he writes this review. There's a present interest in describing a harmony between Christianity and Judaism, not just Jews, but Judaism, that there would be natural, they would be natural partners or interlocutors, which is, of course, the way that Vatican II thinks about Judaism. And Newhouse is nothing if not a good conservative Vatican II Roman Catholic. And what's really going on is that you're projecting sort of 1991 neoconservative American religion back onto the ancient world. That's that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And and while it makes for a, a a nice theory, I just I just don't think it holds holds water. Right. right. Uh, it's just not consistent with the biblical or historical witness on this. And you know we again I don't think you can underestimate the pagan influence. A lot of ink is put on the rabbinic influence and it should be and it's a major factor here. But well, um yeah it- if if it were true that six million Jews suddenly converted to Christianity, I mean, this is kind of like sometimes the discussion about the dating of the books of the New Testament. You know, it, if the temple fell before these things were written, um, you would you would think like you know one of the apostles would want to say, and it happened just like Jesus told us it was right. going to happen. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so right. I would expect if six million Jews converted, that Eusebius or some you know some early church record would say, "Look at this." Well, and, and they all became. Yeah, they all not, became us. Not to make it all about the destruction of the temple, but the destruction of the temple literally happens because they rejected Jesus in mass. Right. I mean, like. Yeah. It, well, uh, what, I, what I'm saying is, at, right. you know, because the question no, I know was what you're not, saying. I, yeah. yeah, it's just yeah. that it would still be standing, presumably, or they would have torn it down themselves mm-hmm. if they had converted. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, yeah, I, I think, Adam, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head here with the, um, with the context of Newhouse and what they're trying to do at that time. 
And, and, you know, don't let this get out to the John Hagees of the world because they won't know what to do with it. Yeah. I mean, we have a sitting in the hopper and, and not to be tackled today because it's, it's worth more time of its own is a, is a fairly detailed, well-informed question about, about bronze age pervert and Nietzscheanism on the, on the right. And, some of the history of the American right. And I, I think it would be worthwhile tracking some of these things because you have to realize that after the Second World War and particularly from the 1970s onward, maybe down to the the growth of Trump, which changes the ecosystem, what you're usually dealing with as far as options on the right in America are the vast majority of actually conservative Americans are going to be evangelical Christians and they are going to be told what to do and how to think by Catholics and Jews. And that's that's a lot of things. That's first things. That's a lot of Heritage Foundation stuff you could go to. That's a lot of the people who make decisions about who runs for office in which state. So you have to keep that in mind. And why, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, as, it's as simple as why do we say Judeo-Christian ethics now when 50 years ago? Right. We wouldn't that was wouldn't have been a term that was thrown around. Right. And that that all had a sort of neutrally conservative veneer that obviously doesn't have anymore. I mean, Ben Shapiro is angry at other people on the right about their lack of support for the Israeli military. That didn't used to happen in that sort of viscerally obvious way. So Newhouse would talk about the public square and religion. Right right in these somewhat vague but implicitly judeo hyphen christian ways and that that's a that's a moment that's now passed but you have to remember it and remember that those are like the priors of most people operating on the right at this point i referred to this in an episode with pastor fist that'll come out maybe after maybe before i can't really remember exactly Tucker Carlson's recent speech at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which in itself is a, is kind of a study in how the right has changed. But Carlson, who's who refers to himself as deeply Protestant, which of course just like warms my heart, talks about how things have changed radically in his own lifetime and his own public engagement. And I think something about Newhouse that's a little hard to remember is that the when he's talking about the ancient world, he's not doing it. Newhouse was not so stupid as to just think this was a this was some kind of merely, you know, academic question. He's doing it because he wants to see some kind of fundamental continuity and and cooperation, such as he saw on the American right in the 70s and 80s, that put people like him in power in media and politics and lots of other things. And you you have to remember that when you're reading somebody like that. Newhouse was a sort of appointed interpreter to swaths of American Christianity that was seen to be broadly conservative mm -hmm. of what it all meant and where it was going. A similar figure now also being bypassed is Robbie George. Again, Catholic, very friendly to Jews on a religious level, right? And if that thing, if that moment is gone, which I hope it is, I think it was dishonest, at least logically, if not purposely. But if that moment is gone, you do have to remember that it was here. And it's part of the baked in framework of a lot of people's thinking about Christianity's relationship to Jews and Judaism, but also about the politics that we either you know support or don't today. Yeah. Well, it's certainly not gone, but it may well be passing. We might, we, <laughs> you know, we, we might have another generation or generation and a half before before that that is purged although it could morph into you know judeo-christian hindu values before uh, the next election cycle well we i mean you're not joking you know <laughs> yeah because what what's significant about it as a framework is that it begins to talk and you know, it's not like everything that was ever printed in first things is like horrible or something. I mean, people have these sort of on off switch type of minds and they can either do one or the other. Like you can read things and then figure it out for yourself. But and Newhouse is generally entertaining. So there's that. He was a better writer than most people and certainly most, you know, people with his background. I'll just leave it there. But 
the issue here is that you're dealing with something that if it was not particularly clear, it was premised on a certain articulation of natural law as the basis for thinking. And I think that was helpful. The question was always, what do we, what does that even practically mean to anyone? And something about first things that I've never particularly enjoyed is that it acts like these sort of academic definitions or or print public think piece definitions of things have any they have some kind of importance I don't know to public life they don't apart from the votes of evangelical Christians because that that's who's really you know you can you can hate everyone that goes in an non-denom church if you want to for all of your own reasons because they're nomophiles or something but they're kind of holding the parts of our country that are not subject to destruction back from destruction in an electoral sense. So it's very important to have people like Newhouse and certainly the folks he was in conversation with knew that who can explain to intellectual elites in the case of first things or whoever else in the case of John Hagee, explain to those evangelical Christians why they're supposed to support what you're saying. That, that's the function of a person like Newhouse. That's a function of a first things. It wasn't there to mobilize the great Catholic masses of which most of them support abortion and have for a long time. And it's certainly not there to mobilize the Jewish vote, which is devoted to the Democratic Party and is very small outside of like New Jersey, proportionally speaking. So you're when when you're dealing with a, a neoconservative or something, you, you want to ask yourself not just what is he saying, and we're saying what he's saying doesn't make sense, but also who is he talking to? Because <laughs> because if you want to actually achieve something in the United States, and that would be actually identifiably con- conserving natural law, the dictates of God manifest in nature then you are talking to evangelical Christians. You are. And I, I, I think often Lutherans, we have some of that same intellectual arrogance that Roman Catholics do, where because we believe that we're right, and I think we're right about Christology and the sacraments, because we believe we're right, we're underestimating what in an earthly sense is actually holding our polity together. And it's not us. Even if we're reliably conservative voters, it's not us. It's evangelical Christians. That's it. Whether you like it or not, that's that's who does it. That That's who's doing the voting that you actually agree with. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on the end of the episode. Any Any final comments for the folks at home? Look into Richard John Newhouse. His background is fascinating. Some listeners will know that he was a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor and became with a with a hit stop in what became the ELCA after Seminex. He became a Roman Catholic. There's a great biography of him by, I think, Ben Yagoda that you can look into because in and of himself, he contains so much about what happens on the religious right in the 20th century. So I think that's certainly worth looking into, even if I'm not the biggest fan of the opinions he actually had. Well, very good. This has been a brief history of power. I hope we brought you some words fitly spoken today. You know where to find us. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider, one that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.